Welcome to Lathia Church. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, what a story, by the way, huh? The Old Testament is great, isn't it? Uh, parents, if you have elementary school age kids that you would like to send to Alethea Junior, now is the time to dismiss them to the back. Our teachers are in the back there. You can go ahead and send them back there for their time. And for the rest of you, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn over to Judges chapter 4. Um, or if you brought your scripture journal, you can use that. Um, if, if you don't have a scripture journal and you would like one, uh, we have those as a free gift to you. It'll have the entire book of Judges in it, and then it'll have a space for you to take notes. So if you want one, just raise your hand. We would love Love to give one to you as a free gift, no strings attached. Uh, just raise your hand, and we have some volunteers around here that would love to give you one if you need one. So, um, we have a lot of text to cover this morning. We're actually uh, going to cover all of Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5 uh, this morning. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to share something, and I, I kind of, it, this is actually more so just to humor me. Um, because I want to know how old I am, uh, like like from a reference standpoint. How many of you guys have seen the movie Remember the Titans? Oh, okay. All right, I'm not as old as I thought I did. Well, it was. Thank you, guys. Uh, like I, one of my all-time favorite movies. The 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 place where that uh, movie takes place was actually about 30 minutes from where I grew up uh, and went to high school. Uh, it's the story of T.C. Williams High School uh, in Virginia, and, and the story of them integrating their football team during the Civil Rights era. And uh, their head coach was a guy by the name of Herman Boone, who was the first black coach at T.C. Williams High School. And the story kind of goes like this. So for those of you that haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin it for you. My apologies. Um, but you've had, I think, roughly 22 years to see it. So at this point, I, is it a spoiler at this point? I don't think so. Uh, but what happens is, is once the school integrates, the original head coach of the team kind of um, agrees to stay on as an assistant coach to try to, to uh, bring the black players and the white players together to kind of figure it out. And when they, when they first come together as a team, it does not go well. The, the white players and the black players are not interested in playing with one another. And when people are unwilling to adjust, when, when, when people are stiff-necked, stuck in their ways, uh, obstinate, especially in the face of, of, of what is right, um, when they're totally driven by their own desires, things tend to not go well. And not surprisingly, this is one of the reasons why of all the sports I played as a kid growing up, football was my favorite because it was the ultimate team sport. You know, you can have 10 people doing what they're supposed to do, and if one's not doing their job and playing for themselves, they can literally ruin it for the entire team. I remember one time in high school, um, we had a guy miss, miss, a, miss an assignment on defense, and the next play we're in the huddle, and he yells, I'm blitzing. And I said to him, I said, well, coach is actually calling you to have outside contain. This could be a problem if they run a toss to your side. And he's like, I don't care, I'm mad. Sure enough, they ran a toss to that side, and I had to run the running back down from about 60 yards to save a touchdown, and that was before horse collars were illegal, and I was able to do that and get away with it. I would have been thrown out of the game probably. Um, now, what all I have to say is like when, when one person is obstinate or stubborn or unwilling to move, right, everyone suffers. Right? When, there, when there's unwillingness to do what is right for the, for, the, for the overall good. And especially when you know what is right, it causes trouble. And the team was terrible. I mean, they weren't getting along well. It was all sorts of problems. It's one of the kind of the cool things that they depict in the movie. And so Coach Boone, right, kind of has this, this 
way of carrying himself in the movie that he's, he's tough, he's a disciplinarian, but he's fair. And he treats everyone the same, and he has a, a standard that he sets for them. And he keeps calling them to do the necessary work, which on a football team means playing with and for one another, not for yourself. Or not for just a few on the team. And there's this huge moment while they're away at camp where they're out late one night and it's not going well and no one's doing what they're supposed to be doing. And you hear the coach say, we'll be here all night if we have to until we get this right because he's trying to like get this in them. And finally, the two leaders on the team, a guy by the name of Julius Campbell and Gary Bertier, one white, one black, kind of have this moment where they play together and the light bulb clicks on for them and they make a big play. And as the two of them, right, adjust and start to support one another and play together, their leadership actually causes something amazing to happen. The entire team responds. The entire team starts playing together. And that team goes on to win the state championship. It's kind of this really cool story. Of course, Disney kind of over-exaggerates it because, like, they actually blew every team out that they played that year. And if you guys have seen that movie, like, they killed everyone. They crushed them. But what we're going to see in the text this morning, I think, is kind of like a, 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 a cool mirror of some of the things that you see in that movie. Right? What, what we see here in Judges chapter 4 is the narrative of something that was going on in Israel during this time. And then when you get to Judges chapter 5, what you see is Deborah and Barak's song in response to what God did during that season of Deborah as their judge. And what we see in Judges chapter 4 is that Israel as a nation is stubborn, stiff-necked, trying to go their own way, running after other gods, living this kind of like pluralistic mindset, this universalistic mindset where they discount or distrust or refuse to follow the God of the Bible. And in that rejection, there becomes all sorts of heartache for them. But then what we see on the back end is that God sends deliverers and leaders to call God's people back to him, to deliver them, and to see God do amazing things through them as a people. So I want to do two things really quickly before we dive into the actual like kind of meat of the sermon this morning. I want to recap what Aaron just read for us and Judges for, just so like if you're unfamiliar with the story, you have one more quick reminder of what's going on. And then I'm going to point out kind of like, Three big questions I think this text asks of us that then it also answers for us so that we, we kind of know what God wants us to see. So here's, here's a re quick recap of what Aaron just read for us in chapter 4. Right. Israel once again rebels. I think we've seen that every week so far in Judges, correct? Like, and again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. You're, just get used to it. It's going to be every Sunday through November. We're going to see that theme over and over and over again. Uh, Ehud, the, the last judge that we saw from last week, is now dead. His leadership is gone. Once that leadership is gone, people run back to idols. They run back to slavery. Israel is sold into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan. Sisera commands that army. And one thing that's interesting to note that you probably saw what, in what Aaron wrote is that every time it seems that Israel does this, the suffering and oppression that they are under seems to get worse each and every time. 
that each and every time they reject God and run to the idols of the nations around them, to the tribes around them, and start intermingling and doing all the things that God told them not to do, the oppression just gets a little worse. That as God gives them over to themselves more and more, the consequences of that get worse each and every time. And so they're in their worst situation yet. And then the people cry out to the Lord for help. And once again, God does what he has consistently done time and time again throughout the book of Judges and throughout the Old Testament. God raises up a deliverer, specifically two deliverers, one being Deborah, who was judging Israel at the time, and the other one being Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite. And if you know anything about the Kenites, they were actually descendants of Cain, from Cain and Abel, not the side you wanted to be descendants from. Right? And they were uh, descendants from Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law. So the reason they kind of point that out is like, Jael was actually not of the people of God. She was not of the, the lineage of Israel. And yet, God uses her as part of the deliverance for his people. And specifically, Jael tricks Sisera with milk. That's actually like really, really important. The milk made him sleepy. Right? It's like the kind of something you're trying to, to point out there. He knows like once Sisera falls asleep, she can drive that tent peg right through his temple, which I mean, again, the Bible is amazing. It'll just tell you exactly what happened, right? And this leads to ultimately deliverance for Israel. When they were in a season of being oppressed, forced labor, slavery, slavery, excuse me, I'm not, I'm not sure what slavery is, right? Slavery, but that as they experienced this oppression, right, God uses these two women to deliver them. And so there's three questions, I think, that kind of get brought up as we look at Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5. And that's where we're going to focus our time this morning. We're going to ask those questions and we're going to move through each one of them. And then we're going to see how God's word kind of answers that for us. And so here they are. I'm going to give them to you and then we'll start working through them. First one is what happens to those, specifically to God's people, who refuse to heed God's command? And we're probably going to know the answer to that, but we're going to look at it. The second one is what happens once God's presence arrives amongst his people? And then the third one is what happens when God's people are willing to serve and follow? To put that another way, what happens when God's people start actually obeying him? What are the, what are the results of what that looks like? So let's look at that first question. What happens to those who refuse to heed God's command? This is going to be kind of a review of everything we've seen each week up until this point. Right. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly. For 20 years, right? So Israel is given over to Jabin. He's got 900 chariots of iron. Here's what the author of Judges wants you to realize. Israel stands no chance from a military perspective of standing up against them. That's basically what's being said there. Like, hey, these guys are advanced both in uh, number of uh, and might of their military and also in the technology of their military, meaning that Israel has no chance of getting out of this oppression that they're in. And then it says, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. 
Not great. Not good. Uh, Israel has once again found itself in a situation where they're not experiencing the rest and freedom and joy that comes from following him. Then I want us to jump down to verse 6. And I want you to see what the judge of this time period, Deborah, says here in verses 6 through 9. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So you see... Right, Deborah's saying, and clearly at this point, the way she's asking this question, something's being revealed to us. That, that Barak already knew that God had told him what he was going to do. God had already at some point communicated to him, hey, I'm going to deliver Israel and I'm going to use you to do so. Right, and I want you to notice something that's really, really interesting here. Right? Here you have Barak who's like technically right, he's supposed to be the one leading, just so we like completely understand what's going on. He's supposed to be the one leading. He's weak. And so Deborah stepped up where Barak did not. Right? And you see his response. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went out with Barak to Kadesh. I want to I address two things there. The first one is just this dynamic of like male-female leadership that's going on there. Right? You have to understand that thousands of years ago, right, there wasn't the, the women's civil rights movement there wasn't as many opportunities and rights for women. The way that Israel had operated during this season and time period is that, that male leaders of different tribes were supposed to be over their, their tribes and leading Israel, and that God had called these men to rise up and lead. Specifically in this instance, Barak. Right? And I'm not gonna, we're not, we don't need to go deep into the design of that. I've done that before. You can go find those sermons online if you want to. But here's just what I would say. Right? What's happening right now in Israel is not necessarily according to what God had called his people to do. And yet the beautiful thing about God, right, is he raises up Deborah in the weakness of Barak and some of the other leaders in Israel to rescue his people anyway. Right? And there's this really kind of cool thing that we see here, uh, specifically in verse 9, where, where Deborah responds to him when he says, I'm not going to go unless you'll go with me. And she says, fine, I will go with you, but no glory is going to come to you from this. And I think it's easy to like gloss over that and not pay attention to it. But what Deborah is saying there basically is you're weak. You're not doing what God's called you to do. And when people remember this story thousands of years from now, they're going to talk about your weakness and unwillingness to follow God. And they're going to talk about the glory and the beauty of what God did through Deborah and Jael. 
Now we can sit back and say like, and we, I think we will, as we work through this sermon, we're going to talk about the beauty and the, the, the courage that both Deborah and Jael show as women. But what I want to do is just take a step back and just say from a leadership perspective, I don't even just want to speak specifically to the men that here this morning, although it is important men that you hear me when I say this. When we don't do what God's called us to do, lead our families, work hard, serve God, trouble follows, right? It's not popular for me to say that in 2022. I get it. But God's word is undefeated on being right. It's undefeated. And if you look at civilizations over the course of human history, I love history and I talk to Pastor Theo who loves it even more than me. But when you see that there is a failure inside of the society of the men to stand up and lead and do what they're supposed to do, there are consequences for that. Which usually means that the ladies have to step up and, and, and bring up and fix the problems. And that is not how God designed it to be. And you see even here, that's exactly what's going on. Men like Barak and the leaders of the other tribes did not step up and do what God had called them to do. And so you see the ladies moving in and cleaning up the mess. And God is gracious enough and kind enough and compassionate enough to do so. But that doesn't mean that's how God designed it to be. And so he tells him, you're not going to receive any glory. As a matter of fact, there's going to be a guy who's 5'6 in Gainesville in 2022 who's going to call you out. Because it's important that we see these things and understand, okay, yeah, this specifically happened thousands of years ago, but the principles remain on how God has designed things to operate. Now, the second thing we see here is this. Barak is so weak and so scared to do what God has called him to do that he refuses to go without Deborah's presence, thinking that Deborah's presence is the only thing that will rescue them. And this is what I want to point out to us this morning. When we are not assured of who we are in Christ as God's people, there only is one possible outcome when that happens, and that's fear. And fear drives people to do strange things every time. Like my wife is one of the most stoic, most like even-keeled people on this planet, and she probably already knows what I'm about to say, until there's a spider. And then it would be preferable to burn the house down to eliminate that spider than to continue to function, right? Like in the first year of our marriage, I just started seminary and I was sitting in, I mean, we had like a 500 square foot apartment, so it's like not big. And I'm like sitting out in our living room and I'm studying or whatever else. And I hear this blood curling scream from our bedroom. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like it wasn't the nicest place in the world we were living. And there had been like people looking through windows in our apartment complex and whatever else. So I'm like immediately thinking like, here, game time, jumping through the window after somebody I don't even know. Right, here we go. And I get back there and I get back into the bedroom and she's standing on the bed like this. And she's laughing because she knows I'm telling the story true. 
And I'm like, what's, what's going on, right? I'm like, I'm, I've got my fists ready. I'm ready to go. She's like, there's a spider. Guys, I'm not joking. When I say that that spider was smaller than the size of a pea, in the corner, <laughs> above the wall on the ceiling, and I'm like, okay, cool. So you know, I, I run, and I get, I get a chair, and I get up there, and I kill the spider, and then I get down, and I said, okay, sweetheart, this is where we have a conversation. Because right now, my heart rate is about 195, and I'm surprised my heart hasn't exploded, right? Because I was ready to die for you just now, right? right? We have a conversation about appropriate level of scream versus size of the spider, right? If it was a tarantula, cool. I'm, I'm here, let's go, right? Burn, burn the whole apartment complex down if we have to. Like, I got you. The very, very tiny, small baby daddy long legs, I think we're going to be good. Let's relax. And I, I share that story, right, to point something out. One, to poke fun at my wife a little bit because it's a funny story. But two, to say fear drives people to do crazy things. Right? Fear drives people to crazy positions. And a lack of faith in God, which was Barak's problem, is he did not walk faithfully with God. He did not trust God. He did not trust in the promises of God. Led him to lack a belief that God would come through on his promises. And that failure to believe that God would come through on his promises was leading to further oppression and slavery of God's people. This has consequences, right? It can manifest itself in all sorts of different ways, but that fear that he had in not trusting God was leading to his own oppression and his people's. And so it matters. If you turn over to Judges chapter 5, right, the song that Deborah and Barak end up writing to commemorate what God does in this season actually speaks to how terrible this time period was, right? In verse 6, they mentioned that it's so dangerous during that time period that no one was able to walk the highways for fear of being robbed and murdered. It's like Southeast D.C. in the 90s when I lived there. You're just like, we're looking over your shoulder all the time. The community in verse 7 is completely crumbling. It says that the, the villagers of Israel were no more. Right, basically saying like, hey, like, they, they had no community because everyone distrusted everyone else. There was nothing being built at that point. Verse 8 says that new gods were chosen and therefore they were constantly at war or at the threat of war because of what they had chosen to do. And Israel was not able to battle but was constantly threatened with war, which led them into this constant state of panic. The whole country was constantly on edge. Needless to say, the results are not good. Failure to obey, trust, and follow God is a repeating theme in the book of Judges that when God's people turn to other gods, God disciplines them and gives them over to other nations. And the results of that are oppression, war, famine, death, and fear, among many things. And the result is the same every time. Judges 4.3, the people cried out to God. They finally get bring low enough to where they say, we've had enough mercy, God, please mercy. 
There's a warning here for us this morning as God's people some 3,000 years later. God's law, his word, his commands are designed for the flourishing of his people. If you're a disciple of Jesus in this room this morning, God's word is meant to cause you to flourish, rest, and enjoy life. It's not meant to rob you of joy. It's meant to bring you into joy. And if we as God's people, the church, choose to directly ignore his words, we should not be shocked when we find ourselves crying out in desperation. You know, I've, I've been a pastor now for over 10 years, and there are certain things that happen in pastoral ministry that just seems like they're on repeat constantly. It's one of the things that like kind of sometimes makes being in, in ministry really, really difficult. Because you'll see someone who is a, a professing Christian uh, but finds themselves in some sort of uh, season of difficulty or sometimes, and frequently the case, um, self-inflicted uh, habitual sin. And, you know, this could be sexual sin. It can be relational sin. It can be a love of money. I mean, there's all sorts of things that I've seen people give themselves over to, the various idols that we run after now in, in 2022. But here's what always I, is kind of like just, you know, you could, the story's different every time, but, but the themes and the narrative's the same. It's just the specifics and the names that change. Every time it's the same, they start giving themselves over to this sin more and more. And as they do that, right, if they're really in Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in them. So guess what happens? Guilt starts welling up. It just wells up and it grows over time. By the way, that is a gift, right? If you're a Christian here this morning and you find yourself in some, some habitual sin and you feel guilt over it, don't run from that, please. Right? God's trying to tell you, hey, something's up. You know, the, the, the same way that when you're getting sick and you might start feeling lethargic or tired or spike a fever, your body's trying to tell you, hey, something's off. Get some rest. You, there's, there's an illness inside of you. There's a, there, there's a virus or something going on, right? The Holy Spirit is trying to tell us something's up. You're robbing yourself of joy. This is not going to go well. The results will not be good. And you see this over and over again. And then, Sadly, oftentimes I'll see them and I'll start talking to them. And I can kind of tell something up and then, then like some more things start happening. They'll stop praying. They'll stop reading their Bible because the guilt's overwhelming them. They'll stop going to church and they'll neglect church community. And the result every time, guys, if, if they're really a follower of Jesus is misery. And Sadly, like as a pastor, you can sit there until you're blue in the face trying to say like, please don't do this. Please, you're robbing yourself of joy. Please trust me on this. I know, I know it seems like it's okay. Please, please don't make this choice, but I can't make it for them. Our call as the church is just to be there and be ready for when they're ready to reach their end point and cry out and God shows some mercy to them. And the beauty of what we see in the book of Judges is that when God's people do that, they rebel. They're stiff-necked. They ignore God's clear commands, his warnings to them. And then they cry out for mercy. God, in his compassion and mercy, answers them every time. Every time. With his presence 
and with deliverance. It's one of the beautiful things about the Old and New Testament is God is the same in both. The way he goes about that presence and that deliverance looks different, but he's the same every time. Which leads us to our next kind of question that that this text asks and answers for us is what happens once God's presence arrives? Right, if you look at Judges chapter 4, we're not going to read each one of these verses. I'm just going to kind of lead you through. But in verse 9, right, Deborah is telling Barak, You are rebellious, but God will deliver Sisera and Jabin into the hand of a woman. In verse 14, right, she's encouraging him once they're about to head into battle. She says, The Lord has given Sisera into your hand. She's encouraging him. Hey, God's presence is here. He's promised this for us. Let's trust him. Let's go. Then you read in verse 15 that the the Lord himself routed Sisera, that Israel defeats the armies of Canaan. And I'm going to go more onto this in a moment because it's actually, you can see from chapter five that this is what God actually did in this moment is fascinating. But just trust me on this. God is the one that gets all the glory for Israel winning this battle. Then, Later on, as Sisera's running, Jael, the Canaanite, not even an Israelite woman, has nothing really in reality to gain from doing what she does, risks her very life to kill the commander of the Canaanite army. Drives a tent peg through his head. And it, but it says in verse 23 of chapter 4, doesn't give a ton of credit to Jael. Who does it give the credit to? God. Says on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And eventually, Israel pushes him out and receives freedom. Look at chapter five with me for a second, because I want you to see like chapter four in the narrative just kind of says like they won and it doesn't really explain what happens. But I think verses four and five give us a picture of what God actually did that day on the battlefield. Starting in verse 4, they're singing and they're saying, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Right, so you see God's presence was with Israel that day. And when that presence is there, right, all of creation is responding to it. But when it talks about what God does, if you look closely, it kind of just seems like God caused a massive thunderstorm to raise up right before the battle. It says that the, the, the water dropped and that water was coming from everywhere, even to the point where the mountains were shaking. And as that water comes down, God gave them victory. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, right? Israel's outmanned and outmatched both in number and in military technology. So they don't really have a shot, and yet God says, go to battle, right? And right before the battle starts, a huge storm and flash flood breaks out. Guess what becomes useless when it's muddy and there's flooding going on? Chariots. Isn't that amazing? It's like, hey, you have no shot, go to battle. And they're like, whoa, this is a bad call, God. Are you sure? God's like, actually, like, I control weather. Heard of it? Huge storm, flash flood, game over. 
The chariots are bogged down. Israel overwhelms them. Sisera is like, I'm out. Takes off. And the point of all of this, and the reason why it's brought into the song, is that Deborah and Barak want Israel to remember one thing. Yes, we were called to war. Yes, we were obedient. Yes, Barak went. Yes, Jael put a tent peg through Sisera's temple. But God was the deliverer of Israel, not us. God did it. Had that storm not happened, God's people are still enslaved and underneath the oppression of Jabin of Canaan. Because God made a way when there was none. Because God is the author of salvation and deliverance. That's who he is. Just as he does here in the book of Judges, he delivers his people and receives all the glory and credit for it he's done for his church. Guys, the scriptures teach us that not one of us in this room is a good person. Right? I mentioned that last week. Right? I, I read that line from the American Humanist Association and, and why they reject the scripture. And they're like, you know, God you know, seems to do evil to innocent people. And I'm like, well the, God, well, the God of the Bible doesn't assume that anyone's innocent. So your premise is wrong. Right? I mean, David even says in the Psalms that in iniquity, he was formed in his mother's womb. Like, you ever want to do something funny, by the way, right? Just like, if you ever get the opportunity to like meet a newborn or whatever, like, everyone loves a newborn, right? They're so kind of cute, right? And they're not screaming loudly yet, right? Sometimes you just pick that baby and I'm like, hello, you little heathen. You obstinate, little rebellious sinner. That's been true of every human being that's ever been born, except for one. And yeah, they're cute. Now, parents know it doesn't take long to realize that that is a reality. I could hear a few parents going, mm-hmm. Right, but God does not assume innocence in anyone, and yet, because he's the author of salvation, he sent his son, his very presence, the same way his presence shows up in the storm for Israel in Judges chapter 4, He sent his presence. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. And what Jesus did is he lived the life we couldn't live. And then he died and was crucified on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God for our sin and rebellion. And what happens in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is something theologians call the great exchange. Right? God himself God the Son takes on your sin and rebellion towards God, pays the penalty for it, and then he credits to you, he gives to you his righteousness with the Father. And what happens in that moment is that all of us, if we're in Christ, go from enemies of God to friends of God. From being fatherless to having a father. Because God is the author of salvation and deliverance. And the God of judges is the same God who has delivered us. So we see what happens when the people don't listen. We see God deliver anyway. What happens once God does deliver? You're going to notice that the people respond. And they respond in a mighty way. 
Two things I want us to see. The first one is this. The first thing that the people do once God delivers is they worship. Look at Judges chapter 5. It says, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, they sang. Right? On that day, they sang. They, they made a song like to commemorate what God had done. Then verse 3, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Right? Hey, kings, princes, rulers of the land, God's the one that gets the glory. Let's worship him. Go down to verse 10. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Right? There's, hey, sing, make a melody of what God has done, and then tell others to repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord. See, what this song is designed to do is to remind us God delivered and that the people rejoiced and sang and that the people of God testified of God's goodness and deliverance. Church, this is our call as well. This is why we're gathered here this morning. We're gathered here for one reason only, to worship our deliverer to sing to him, to testify of his goodness, to proclaim the salvation that God has brought to us through Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. If you're here for any other reason this morning, you're here for the wrong reason. If you're here to feel less guilty about your week, it's not the design of Sunday morning. If you're here to see that cute guy or girl you like, here for the wrong reason. We are here to make much of the creator of the heavens and earth who has delivered us from ourselves. That's why I always like, Francis Chan has this like famous line. I love it so much. He can get away with being this rude. He's, he's talking about his church in San Francisco and he said some woman walked up to him sometime and said, Hey, pastor, how are you? It's good to see you. And he's like, oh, it's good to see you too. How are you doing? And, and he goes, how, how, you, how have you been? How's today going? She's like, well, you know, I, I got to be honest with you, pastor. I just didn't really get out of much, much out of worship today. He said, he looked right at her and said, well, good. It wasn't for you. I want you to pause and think about that for a minute because I've heard that very same statement in this church at times. It doesn't mean that we don't have certain heart languages that pull us a certain way or things that we love. But here, here's, here's what I would say. Church is not about you, ultimately. It's about the one who saved you. Right? If church is about us, we, we're better off hanging out at a country club or playing disc golf or whatever it is you do for fun and creating just some sort of club. The, the reason we gather on Sunday morning is to celebrate the good news, the historical reality that Jesus Christ was dead but rose from the grave. And because he rose from the grave, we all have been offered new life and forgiven because of Christ. That's worth celebrating. That's worth getting up before 10 a.m. That's worth giving up some time on a Sunday morning to celebrate. 
And we gather to be reminded of the good news that God is still delivering his people today. And we as his people get the joy of proclaiming that good news and worshiping him for his goodness toward us. It's why we have our one campaign here. Not because we want some cool marketing gimmick. It's like, no, we truly believe that God wants us to be the ones that share the good news of what Jesus has done with others. Even if it's just one person. Sharing the fact that God loved them so much that he laid down the life of his only son for them. That's why we're here. If we're here for any other reason, we've missed it. And so we see that when God delivers, his people immediately respond with worship. And the second thing we see is this. Their hearts are changed and they're led to obedience. Look at verse 2. That the leaders took the lead in Israel. See 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 what they're saying there? Yeah, they did what they were supposed to do. They hadn't been, and then they did. They weren't leading. They were leaders, but they weren't leading, and now they are. That the people offered themselves willingly. And then look, notice, we're not going to thank them for that. Thank God. Bless God. Bless the Lord. Look at verse 9. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. They gave their lives. They put their lives at risk. They put their lives in danger to do what God had called them to do. You know, the commanders offered themselves, and you read there in chapter 5 that the tribes of Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, Zebulon, Issachar, and Naphtali all risked their lives to save God's people from the oppression. Not even all of Israel gathered. Isn't that that crazy to think? There are 12 tribes, and six showed up. And yet God still used it. Then you look at verses 24 through 27. Right, look at what he says. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked her for water, she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Right, could you imagine singing this in church? Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Jael risked her own life. You know, she could have been offered protection from the commander of the strongest army and government in the region. And instead, Jael's faith in Yahweh led her to choose God over Assyria, their gods, their power, and their leaders. And the results are that God used these people to deliver Israel and God's people flourish. And here's how I know that. Look at verse 31. And the land had rest for 40 years. Go from slavery, rebellion, oppression to rest. Because God had delivered And then God's people responded in obedience from that deliverance. Church, I have a theory. And it's that God wants to use us as well. 
Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Put that on a Hallmark card. Like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. See what, see what Paul's saying there to the church at Ephesus? We were dead. Dead people don't make themselves alive. We were dead. God was rich in mercy toward his people. And then he made us alive. He delivered us from death to life. Not just delivery from an army, not just delivery from slavery, which by the way, he did because we were enslaved to sin. No, the scripture says that he actually delivered us from death. Delivered us from death to life, right? We were in the exact same place and are in the exact same place as Israel is in Judges chapter four. And God delivered. God made a way when there was no way. And then look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. We're his prized possession. We're his people. Those who are in Christ you have been created, brought to life through the blood of Jesus Christ to worship him and to obey him, just like Israel was. God has prepared that for us. The call is just to walk in it. You know, I want to just, I want to pause and have you guys just sit on that for a minute. To those serving here at Aletheia Church regularly, God sees you. He does. People here might not. You may not even get enough credit from the leaders of the church, and we apologize to you for that. You know, GC leaders, you have people in your home every week, cleaning, getting ready for them, helping cook, prepare, feeding them, listening to them. God sees that, and he's doing a good work in you. I think about our Aletheia junior teachers out there dealing with my kids, pouring into them, teaching them about God's love, laying a foundation for the gospel and the heart of our children. God sees that. 
Some of you guys, you come in here, you grab a cup of coffee, you grab food, having no idea that people were here an hour plus early to make sure that that was there for you. We're going to take communion here in a minute that there are people here an hour early ready to prepare that for you so you could take it. People standing out in the rain making sure there's enough parking spots so that we can all come in here and sing about Jesus. God sees that. He does. And he rejoices in it because you're his workmanship. And if you're here and you've been here for a long time, right? I'm not yelling at you, but let me just say something to you. If you're not serving, God has prepared works for you. His body needs you. We need you here. God wants to use you. Like, I don't know what to do. Come see me after the service. I would love to give you some work. And if, you, if you're like, oh, maybe I won't go see Pastor. Go see Pastor Theo. Fill out a connection card. Let's be the church. Let's respond and worship together as God's people. But then let's respond in obedience, serving one another and serving those that don't know Jesus and sharing the good news of what Christ has done with them. And I'm crazy enough to think that generations in the future might just be singing songs about God's faithfulness to this one the same way that generations later were singing about God's faithfulness to Israel 3,000 years ago. Because here's what I know. God is faithful. He's good, and his promises are true. Let's respond to him.